Well, hello everybody, this is Arwen, and this is episode three of Cardboard Time. I am flying solo today with the holidays going on. It's a little bit difficult for Justin and Phil to get together, but hopefully soon we will have one or both of them back with us. Today's beer of the day is Habitual by Saucy Brewworks. It's right up the road in Cleveland. It's a Kolsch-style ale, very light and smooth. It's a very nice, refreshing beer. If you just want to sit and drink something, relax, have a couple, it, it's very good for that at 5%. I was going to try the peanut butter pony that was sitting in my fridge, but that's at 13%, and quite honestly, you don't need me sounding any worse than I already do. This is a new segment that I'd like to add, and it's just a little collection status update. When I started this whole thing and the whole Cardboard Time concept, I was up to 330 unplayed games at one point in my collection, and I really wanted to have something to motivate me to bring that number down. So... That's why I started this whole thing, so I figured, why not just put it out there and say, okay, here's where my collection's at. I am at 192 unplayed games right now out of 659 games I own, which is at 29%. Uh, It was 191 at the start of today, but I did make a little purchase on Black Friday of Sanctum, basically Diablo in a box. Looking forward to getting that out to the table because it does have a additional solo mode that was put out by CGE. Well, today we're going to talk about a couple of games I've been playing, again, solo, trying to do the whole social distancing thing and getting some games out at the same time. They are a little bit heavier today, and I've only got a couple of them because they're so heavy. I did have to spend a lot of time learning rules and trying to figure out exactly what was going on, but I think it was definitely worth it based on the two games that we're going to talk about today. Obviously, we have a Kickstarter corner, which is going to be a little bit condensed today, just because Kickstarter's been a little bit slow as of late. But as part of Kickstarter Corner, we are going to kind of talk about new releases at the same time. We actually have an interview with uh, Keith from USB Escape. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. And then finally, we actually have a viewer mail question that we're going to address. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but stay tuned. And I think this should be some good information. So let's get right into what I've been playing. Now, again, these are very heavy games, and I'm going to talk about two of them. The very first one is Mage Knight. Mage Knight is a 1-5 to player game. It plays in 60 to 240 minutes. I'm not exactly sure at the 60 end. I think you'd have to be pretty seasoned at the game to really get a 60-minute game of Mage Knight in, but the 240-minute mark I could definitely see based on my gameplay. The designer was Vlada Vadil. I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. The game was also published by WizKids, and in Mage Knight, you're building a hero's spells, abilities, and artifacts as you're exploring and conquering cities. Mage Knight currently sits at number 25 on BGG's top 100 list. So when I got Mage Knight off of my shelf, 
I kind of took a look at what I could get to the table solo. Again, with the current stay-at-home orders and the current state of the world, I was looking for something that I could get to the table that was going to tax my brain a little bit, but I was still going to be able to play relatively well solo. And I do want to get that unplayed number down. And Mage Knight was one of those games that had been sitting on my shelf and just kind of staring me in the face. So I wanted to make sure that I got that out. I have tried to get Mage Knight to the table a total of seven times before. And at a 4.31 out of 5 weight on BGG, it's very obvious why. This game is a beast to try to learn. There are a lot of things going on with it. There's a lot of rules, but it was definitely worth the effort. The game surprisingly had a very straightforward solo mode considering the weight of the game itself. The solo mode acts almost as a cattle prod that's going to force you to move. It's a, a balance between going in and building up your character and trying to end the scenario. So you have to balance those. If you lag a little bit too long, this will force you forward. The game overall is a very nice feeling deck builder. You can definitely feel the sense of progression that you have with your character. You gain new abilities, you gain artifacts, you gain spells, and you're going to use mana that comes out through dice rolls and through cards that you play to try to set off these abilities and spells. During your turn, you get a movement, and then you get one action, and that action can be recruiting townsfolk to help you out, it can be attacking something, it can be exploring something. There's a wide variety of different things that you can do, but the turn structure, once you really get to learn it, is not that bad to execute. I was surprised for as heavy a rule set as Mage Knight had, once you really settle into the game, how everything just kind of clicks. This game is definitely going to stick around on my shelves for some more solo play. I may be putting the Ultimate Edition on my wish list. I know that it is currently out of stock almost everywhere that I've looked, but I may look at some... FLGSs and see if I can find a copy anywhere. It was a very solid game and I definitely enjoyed it. It was undoubtedly worth learning. And that was Mage Knight. So the other game on my list was not an unplayed game, but it was something that I had been meaning to get back to the table. And that is Gaia Project, another very, very heavy game. Gaia Project is a 1-4 to four player game. It lasts from 60 to 150 minutes. Again, 60 minutes more on the end if you have a couple of players and you really know what you're doing. The designer was Jens Drogmuller and Helge Ostertag, published by Z-Man Games. And again, I apologize if I butcher these names. Unfortunately, German and Czech isn't exactly my first language. So my apologies if I got that wrong. 
in Gaia Project, you're expanding, researching, upgrading, and ultimately settling colonies and mining establishments, trading posts in the galaxy. So you're trying to build your influence through different buildings as you settle on different planets and take control of these different areas. Gaia Project currently sits at number seven on BGG's top 100 list. And this is only the second time that I've gotten this game to the table, and the reason why, once again, was a 4.34 weight on BGG. The first time was April of 2018, and again, I had really wanted to get this game back out to the table, see what it was all about. I didn't really truly understand the hype back when I first played it, but I saw that there might have been something to this, so really wanted to get back out and say, okay, what's this all about? Let's see. I had an absolutely horrible score the first time that I played this at 68 points. This time around, I scored about 110, 112, something like that. So a much better run this time. And I really think that could be because I may grasp the individual mechanics and engine building in this game a lot better this time around. There are definitely some things that your faction really wants you to do. So you have a choice of 14 different factions in the base game that you can choose from. And all those different factions have different types of planets that they prefer. What should I build first? What should I try to race towards to help my engine out in the later rounds? The faction that I had was definitely geared around generating currency and then exchanging that currency for different resources. So once I figured that out, and I actually played with the same faction that I did the first time, it was a lot better. I had a lot more fun with it. This game is heavy and it is a table hog. You are going to use every single inch of your table for this. You have a giant area that has your map on it depending on how many players that map can actually get bigger or smaller you have a board that is your technology track and your scoring and you also have a goal board in addition to your individual player board and area there's a lot going on and there's a lot of real estate that this takes up and it is a long setup there's a lot of randomized different things but with that, you have a lot of replayability. And again, with all these different factions, these different scoring conditions, these different technology bonuses, this game is really, really rewarding and has a lot of replayability. The Atoma in the solo mode is extremely solid. There is a little bit of complication when you're putting mines in. It is a little bit sluggish, but it accounts for everything and trying to get into your way. So one thing that I've mentioned on this show before is the fact that when you have a solo mode or an Otoma, one of the most important things is to make sure that that Otoma is getting in your way. So it's doing actions to kind of prevent you from doing something that you really want to do, whether that's putting a mine in a planet that you really want to mine on, or by taking an action and blocking that off that you really wanted to take. This did a great job of it, and although the score difference was very 
big this time. I did have it on easy mode. I feel that if I bumped it up to normal, that score would have been really close, and we would have definitely been racing for some victory points. The hardest part of this game to teach is the power cycle, and I don't want to go into all the different components of the game because there is a lot to teach, but there's essentially a cycle on your player board that requires you to cycle power and kind of charge power to execute certain actions. Different actions require power from different places. So trying to teach people that is a little bit cumbersome. My experience with Gaia Project really made me want to go back and replay some of my older games again. There's a lot of times that you forget some of the great older games in your collection. When you have the cult of the new, you have all these new exciting games, different themes coming in, and you're trying to keep up. It's very easy to get lost in the shuffle. Some of these amazing games that came out a while ago, sometimes it's worth looking at your collection just sitting there and saying, I remember how good of a game this was, and I really enjoyed this. And that was Gaia Project. Well, stay tuned, because next on Kickstarter Corner, we have a project to talk about and an interview with Keith from USB Escape. Stay tuned. And welcome back to Kickstarter Corner. Well, today we have one project to talk about. Kickstarter's been a little bit light lately, I'm not going to lie. There are some things I looked at that I really liked. Bardsung was one of them, but I have a lot of dungeon crawls. It's something that I feel like I already have a lot of things that actually fill that need. So between Gloomhaven and Sword and Sorcery, Imperial Assault, Descent, I have a lot that already kind of fills that that bill and it looked like a very solid game. There did seem to be some unique aspects, but unfortunately that wasn't something that came home. I also looked at Atlantis Rising. I like the co-op. I I really like the looks of it, but unfortunately, again, the price point was a little bit much. Right now, with the holiday season coming up, I wasn't really sure, can I afford this? Is this going to get to the table enough? And I just wound up waiting it out and saying, now, you know what, maybe at some point I will get in on this, but now is not the right time. But one project that I did get in on was a project called Board Game Blankets. And this is a great project for the winter months that are coming up ahead. I think it's going to be a very, very cold winter from what I hear. I really like the designs that this project launched with. The project right now, as of the recording of this, is at 4618 out of of a $7,500 goal. So it is kind of on that edge. As of this episode, it will have seven days remaining. So it's something that you can go and check out. The designs are very nice. They reflect the common board game tropes. You have your meeples, your dice, everything's kind of included. And there's three different sizes and weights. There's a lightweight 50 by 60 inch blanket for 25, a heavier flannel and Sherpa fabric of the same size for 35, and a heavier fabric 60 by 80 inch for $45, and then shipping on top of that. There is an option where you can get all three of them for a discount. So that is definitely something to check out. It is Board Game Blankets. 
Well, Kickstarter has been a little bit light for me lately, but there is plenty of new games that are coming out. I wanted to share a project that's just been released, and today we have Keith here with a game called USB Escape. So welcome, Keith, and welcome to Cardboard Time. I'm super happy to be on here. Um, I'm very excited to say that I'm one of your fans, so I'm super happy to be on the show, uh, and I'm really excited to talk about the game. Well, thanks for joining us, and we're really glad to have you all the way from the Great White North, I understand. That is correct. I'm just from outside of Toronto, which is Ontario's capital. It's a little snowier up here than I'm sure where you're at, but I'm staying warm and I'm talking to you guys. Probably a little bit warmer here than it is up there, but I've spent plenty of time up in that area. I used to live up in Buffalo, so Toronto was kind of my old stomping grounds for sure. Keith, I have to ask you, what is USB Escape? So USB Escape is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's an escape room right on a USB stick. So we are super excited to be announcing our first game in the Not Family Chronicles. So it's a three game experience. So this is the first one that we're releasing. And everything that you need to play this game is right on your USB stick uh, that gets sent to you. So this game follows our main character, Owen Knott, after he's selling his childhood home after the untimely death of his mother. So this game deals with themes of death and loss and the importance that trauma plays into the grieving process all wrapped into a horror escape room experience. What this actually amounts to is eight major puzzles, 13 hidden minor puzzles, one giant meta puzzle, and over two and a half hours of gameplay for the player or players to enjoy. Well, it sounds really, really involved and really awesome. You have games out there like Unlock and Exit, and a lot of escape room games are becoming very popular. What makes USB Escape different from those other games? Absolutely. So it's great that you brought up a lot of those. Unlock, Escape, uh, Deckscape, those are all wonderful games. They were actually what got me into the escape room field. So I kind of feel like I came in through the back door as opposed to a lot of people who did them in person. So what makes USB Escape different is where a lot of those games, the goal is to finish as quickly as possible. USB Escape kind of takes a step back and allows it for more of a realistic immersive experience. What I really, and this was made with 100% intention, I wanted to have a game that if you wanted to sit there with a puzzle for, you know, two, three hours and really kind of push against all the boundaries of it, that was definitely something that would be accessible for you and you wouldn't feel penalized or rushed. I've always wanted to have a game where you just get a lot of bang for your buck. On top of that, what makes it different is that you can really end up creating a, a really unique experience based on the way that you want to play. So as I said a little bit earlier, there's about two and a half hours of gameplay in there. Uh, that's a rough estimate because if you want to sit and read every single file and dig into every single subtle nuance, and there is a lot in this game, then you're more than happy to get into that. If you want to just kind of bang out some puzzles and run right to the end just to you know brag to your friends about how well you did, that's definitely accessible for you as well. So it kind of caters to all types of escape room players, all types of puzzle solvers, and gives a little bit to, to everybody, but it doesn't have that 60-minute constraint where, you know, hey, your time's up, you kind of failed, or, you know, hey, you, you got out early with, a, you know, 10 seconds to spare, congratulations. It kind of gives you a, a unique gameplay where you kind of access this on your own speed. 
So it actually sounds like there's a lot of layers involved that you can kind of customize how deep into the game you want to get. So uh, one of the cool things about this game is that I wanted it to really resemble those old school creepypasta st like vibes. So that's where the horror element comes in. So this is a, an immersive story. I, I'm not particularly picking on any take home escape room, but it's not a, you know, a game with a, a spooky ghost picture in the corner. This is an actual immersive story that has characters that you are learning about and there is video components there's audio components there's pictures to look over and combine and and the actual story is told through emails that are being passed back and forth between a brother and sister as as the brother is processing the transaction of selling the parents home and and just the, the mysterious occurrences that happen around it. What makes it particularly different and, and new in a lot of different ways is that you really get an immersive story. You really get that old school creepypasta feel. And if you don't, if you're not, if you're one of the people who don't remember creepypastas, those are those early internet horror stories you know if you do a quick google search for like jeff the killer or russian sleep experiment or stuff like that you can it probably it'll jog the memory and if not it'll be a really good find for you and maybe keep you up a couple of nights and you mentioned these creepypastas any of them in particular that really kind of influence the development of the game that's a wonderful question. I've always really been attracted to, there was a string of them that weren't specifically named, but the family living in the house already. So the, you know, the family living in the crawl space, there's one, if you kind of, if you look up, that's not my girlfriend, it'll come up with a picture of, of a girl coming out of like a, a vent and out of the kitchen in the middle of the night. A lot of those type of ones were a big inspiration for that. Definitely didn't directly rip anything off. Um, I wanted to create something unique, but it does have a lot of the elements of the spooky is within the house so it, it gives a nice little contained area and it creates uh, it creates a fun spooky atmosphere and anybody who's a huge fan of those type of horror stories are going to get a huge big kick out of it people who are not or new to it are definitely going to enjoy a lot but if for those who who are you know particularly impassionate about that they're going to definitely get a kick out of this game getting back to the the usb format itself what would you say the advantage of playing on a usb as opposed to having a physical box of puzzles kind of sitting in front of you would be yeah there was two reasons why i went for that in particular and it it wasn't to save myself money trust me that usbs are, are not free these days but the biggest thing is that number one when you find a usb stick you know if you ask anybody or you do any uh, type of searching online it, they say you know if you find a usb stick don't plug it into your computer that's that's foolish it's it's akin to clinking clicking on a, a bad download link you know you never know what somebody has put on that usb stick so there's that that hidden mystery about having something that you know you really shouldn't be putting in your computer because you weren't the original designer behind what information or what could possibly be on that stick. Secondarily, I really wanted to create a game that was intuitive for the players where it didn't have this tutorial manual, especially for a horror game. I didn't want to ruin the mood by being like, hi, you know, this is Uncle Key's spooky game. Click here to unleash the spooky. I wanted to have the player really go about this on their own and kind of have a lot of trust in the player that they're going to make 
the obvious logical steps that they have to plug it into their computer. I don't need to tell them that. They have to click on a file. They, I don't need to tell them that. When a file is password protected, well, maybe there's a puzzle somewhere in this file that you need to solve. And it's all very apparent. It's very streamlined. I've never had any of my beta testers go, I don't know how to do this. I've had some try to plug the USB stick in upside down, but that is about the extent of it. So I wanted to really honor the the intelligence of the player and not really come up with a, a box and a tutorial and a you know a spooky ghost floating in the corner. I wanted to be as authentic as possible. Well and that's that's a really, really interesting concept. And there was a video that I saw not too long ago about some of the older school video games that the way that they taught you was an intuitive I know that you know at this point you should jump if you've got like crates. If you have this ledge that has a little tiny opening under it, you should either dash through it or slide through it or whatever. So I I think I can see where you're going, where you're actually making it intuitive and getting into the story before getting into the more difficult parts. And that, to me, appeals to me as a player because, like you said, you're not insulting the player's intelligence. Absolutely. And I think you hit on numerous key points. Now, my background is always been in video or in uh, in board games rather than video games. So I've brought a lot of that idea where you can trust that your players are going to understand a lot of the, the general logic. So you hit on a lot of really amazing things. I think one of the things that is really important about USB Escape is that I've had a couple beta tested where I've told them, I am mixing up the order of the story. I am making it completely random. I want to see if it makes sense to you. If you start on chapter four, then do chapter one, then do chapter eight, then do chapter six. And everybody that I've played with it has has followed the story. Has Some of them have taken a little bit of time with the puzzles because of, you know, you have to use a little bit of logic and reasoning. But through the whole thing, the experience isn't tarnished by having to do, quote unquote, the wrong thing. Well, it sounds like this was certainly a lot of work to develop. Can you give us a little bit of an insight as to what the development process was kind of like? Absolutely. I'm really sorry. This may not end up being the most uh, exciting answer possible, but the way that I came up with this game was that I had recently come off of uh, an escape room that I really, really felt was unfair and didn't make a lot of sense. And it was kind of like, I can do that. And I don't remember the day I sat down to start this. I I don't remember day one. I remember month one when I had, you know, four of my eight puzzles completed and some of the story pieced together. It was really just something that kind of happened automatically. And it really just ended up snowballing. The process about coming up with puzzles was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of things that I I had seen in, in other puzzles and said, hey, this really didn't work, but this would make a really good idea for a puzzle. I wanted to create something that was different from your general puzzles that you're used to seeing. So I took a lot of wrong answers and really polished them up until they were some really nice answers. And that was a lot of trial and error. That was a lot of taking a break just to really think about it and coming back to it. And a lot of times where I was setting my alarm for the next day to get up and go to work and saying I got four or six hours before my alarm goes off. So a lot of long nights, but a lot of hard work. But the end result is is something that a lot of people are, are not going to have seen in terms of puzzles. So you mentioned a lot of layers to the puzzles. I know that difficulty can be a big 
factor in escape rooms and kind of put some people off incorporated in the layers themselves is that how the difficulty scales can you explain a little bit more about that so the one unique thing about uh, escape rooms in general is that they have to appeal to the person who's done a thousand escape rooms and get provide them with a challenge and then also be relatively manageable enough for somebody who's never done an escape room before and this is their first attempt. So you gotta appeal to both of those. So therein lies the challenge. What really makes the process a lot easier is that we wanted to really create a system where if you missed out on something particular and then there was really no answer for you, you could continue and you would be missing a little piece of the story, but you would understand the overarching story. Also on top of that as well, this is what everybody will tell you and you know who is, is familiar with a lot of escape rooms is hints. Once again, as I mentioned earlier, I really wanted this to feel as authentic as possible. So because it's on a USB stick and a lot of the files are password protected, well, it made most sense for the hints to be in a password reset. So just like if you had forgotten your Facebook password or or, or your, your Discord password, there's a, a place to go to reset your password. Well, you could go there to get hints on how to kind of break through to get your password reset. So it really ends up creating a, a story that never really breaks character. You have the difficulties and and it's really, really impressive with escape rooms is there's some puzzles that I've seen some people who have been veteran escape room artists sit there and pull their hair out and somebody who's never done one before walks in and goes, yeah, it's too easy. I can't believe you should probably take that one out. I, I had such an easy time with it. So, you know, there's always a flip side to how you do it. And I would always say like the last thing on this is that if you're having trouble with an escape room, do it with a group of people. That's why the in-person escape rooms are always, they always recommend you have a, a group of people go with you. It's not because they want to believe that you have friends, but multiple minds really end up helping your cause. Finally, you mentioned that this was chapter one. I would assume that you have some other stories in mind then. Everything's going to be contained within a singular universe. So this is the first chapter. So this is the mysterious occurrences that are happening to Owen Knott in his family. His mother has recently passed away. He's selling his family home um, and he's communicating with his sister. And at the end of the escape room, some pretty, pretty mysterious things are, are happening. And you're, you get to explore that for yourself. Season two is going to revolve six months later around Owen Knott's sister, Allie Knott, and her researching into what ended up happening to her brother. And then the third season is going to be a throwback, a prequel to how all of this really came about. So elements from all three are going to tie in really well together. I am ensuring everyone now that if you have not done one and two, it's not going to hamper your ability to do three. However, the story, if, you, if you're a completionist like me and you need to know everything about this story, then you'll need one, two, and three. But if you want to just jump in at number three, then I'm more than happy to tell that story and I'm more than happy to hear how you did. That sounds awesome. It, it sounds like you really have this overarching story that you're trying to build up and engage people in and leave them wanting more, which I can really, really appreciate. That's something I look for in a lot of games is, am I going to go and be able to continue this outside of this box? Is there going to be something more than this? So I, I like having that, that overarching story. 
And you touched on one thing, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but there are real-life elements that are included in this one that are going to be included in the other two. So if you want to keep the game just within your laptop or your PC, whatever you're doing, your you know your MacBook, whatever, you're more than it's more than acceptable like that. If you can't get enough of this and you want to take this into this real world, there are real-world elements and there are actual things that you can do in real life. So... The game is available now, correct? Yeah, you can catch it on at usbescape.com. If you're feeling patriotic and you're Canadian listening to this, you can get it at usbescape.ca. If you are sitting on the fence and you want to try a couple of the puzzles out first to make sure this is your bag, then I would definitely check us out at usb.escape on Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok as well. So if you can't find us, you're not looking. That sounds awesome. And the price point of the game? So right now it's sitting at $14.99 Canadian and it's available internationally. That's fantastic. I know that I certainly have a few people here that I have told about this. They're looking forward to it. I think there might be a purchase in my future too. I can't wait to see that pop up on my inbox and I'll make sure that I personalize it so it's extra creepy just for you. Oh boy. That sounds awesome, Keith. So I also have to ask, this is a board gaming show and escape rooms are still within that realm. But has there been anything that you've been playing outside of escape rooms lately? Absolutely. So as I said, I, I'm uh, we're doing this through podcast. So it's this audio. So you cannot see the plethora of board games behind me. I am pushing myself all the way through Gloomhaven so that I can, when my copy of Frosthaven shows up, I can start playing that. That is a that is a process for sure. So soloing that one right now. I will always, always, always recommend Kalimala, which comes from Stronghold slash Indie Board and Games uh, as one of my all-time favorite games. But what I've been playing a lot recently, I've been introducing some people new to the hobby so i've been playing a lot of takenoko so i've been eating a lot of bamboo with a adorable panda recently it's such a great gateway game very easy to teach and i really love the theme on it you can really get people into the experience that way so yeah i definitely agree takenoko is an awesome game i haven't played kalimala yet Nobody has. It's really, really unfortunate. That's why I was pushing it unnecessarily. Silk trading and donating to different churches. I always joke around with my friends who play a lot of video games. I go, you save the worlds from aliens. I'll just worry about trading silk across the sea in the, you know, (laughs) in the 14th century or whatnot. So yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful game. It's one of those race games that you have to, you have 15 different races to accomplish and you can you only ever have time for a limited number so it's a lot of resource management hands down an amazing game definitely worth checking out but yeah that i would that has always been on my all-time favorite list although i i will say because i was listening to episode two earlier and i you were talking about worker placement games and you had mentioned that Wingspan was not your favorite engine building game. And I said out loud in, in front of many people, explain yourself, um, <laughs> but you didn't hear me. So I, I I feel I am owed that. And I feel that your listeners are owed that. How is Wingspan not your favorite? And I accept whatever answer. I'm just interested. 
No, that's that's a very good question. It's usually a, a hot take that gets me into a lot of trouble. So Wingspan, I love the theme. I absolutely love the theme. And like Kalimala, you talked about, well, I'm going to stick to trading. And there are certain themes that I think in a video game, it would be very hard to sell. But in a board game, you can sell it. And I think Wingspan works as far as theme goes. As far as components go, the game is fantastic. I think where I don't necessarily like it as much as other people do is the fact that there's so many different cards, which you can go and play multiple different games and not have that, re- you know, you have a lot of replay value of things that you haven't seen. But at the same time, for me setting up an engine, I want to have some efficiency after I play 10 games of it. And I haven't been able to find that yet in Wingspan, like I have in a game like Gizmos, where Gizmos, I have an idea, I can go, I can set up my engine, I know kind of what cards are coming out, you know, within reason, and I can go and search the deck and see, okay, I can pull this, I can pull that, I can build this to kind of further my engine. I didn't really get that with Wingspan. And it's not to say that Wingspan's a terrible game and that I hate it because it's still on my shelf. It's still something that I play on occasion and I've gotten to appreciate a little bit more with time. But I think my initial reaction to that was I have way too many options here to really kind of juggle. You know what? I think that's an absolutely, you know, accurate answer. I'll have to play Wingspan with one of the other million fans that are absolutely in love with it. But, you know, I can definitely see where you're coming from on that. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to play Gizmo together then. Yeah, absolutely. Gizmos is definitely like my core If I'm going to show somebody just pure engine building, that's what I go to. Somebody that's new to the hobby that might not necessarily appreciate the theme of Gizmos, I'll throw them wingspan and say, here's here's this game. It's about birds. They're like, oh my God, birds? Like, really? They made a board game about birds and building a sanctuary for freaking birds? That's insane. I think that there is a certain sector that Wingspan definitely fits into. I just don't find it to be that engine building kind of masterpiece that everybody really kind of portrays it to be. But I still appreciate the game. Absolutely. And I never said that you didn't love the game. I was always just surprised that it wasn't your absolute favorite. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the other thing that you touched on was Gloomhaven Solo. So I do a lot of solo gaming. I've done a few of the solo scenarios, like the really tough ones to get the upgraded equipment for certain characters. Have you done your entire campaign solo? I've done my entire campaign solo. I'm not completed yet. I'm pretty close. I'm imagining I'm only a couple more missions away. No spoilers. No spoilers if you have them, but... uh, but uh, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying opening boxes and uh, and discovering what's new out there. But at this point, I I have to just finish it because I mean, at this point, you've come this far. You got to find out what happens. I think there's one character that we haven't unlocked yet, and I'm actually in two different games at the same time. So my main game that I started, I think it was like almost three years ago at this point, whenever that second edition Kickstarter fulfilled. We've just been playing it forever, and we've 
we finally got to this point where we're kind of running out of stuff to do. We've kind of quote unquote beaten the game. And then we're just going through and trying to get through some of the other things that are out there. I'm on the frost haven train too. I, I'm I'm waiting for it. And I can't remember, was that springtime, if I remember correctly? To be quite candid with you, I never trust Kickstarter um, de- release dates. I've, no. I've, I've been burned a couple of times. I just I close my eyes and I wait for them to show up on my front door and I get really excited. That's why I have no money in my wallet. And that's why I have a full heart uh, full of board games. So Title Blades was an example of, yeah, we, we can't really trust Kickstarter with, with their release dates because I've been, I had been waiting for two years for that game and it finally showed up. It was definitely worth the wait. It's a great game, but I think it was about a year behind, roughly. I don't want to say that I was really excited for that game, although I didn't back it because I, I missed missed that window. But I, I volunteered to help out with Skybound and Druid Games at Gen Con two years ago, maybe three now. It's hard to tell timing with pandemic, just so that I could have a, a little inside track because I knew they were demoing it. So fantastic game, beautiful game. And oh, I can't wait to hear more about how it goes. I, I know I was listening to you talking about playing that solo. So I can't wait to see how that works out for you. And I, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy myself. Well, hopefully I'll finally be able to play with a, you know somebody other than just me and you get the multiplayer out to the table because I... I believe that it's going to be a very, very different experience. That game's so beautiful. You set it up. You know, somebody is going to sit down and and ask to be taught how to play that game. And that someone might end up being me, depending on the timing. You mentioned Gen Con. Are there any other conventions that you really like to go to? So because I'm in Canada, wherever I go, it's a vacation trip for me. So I've been to PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia, Gen Con, and then the local ones here. So for the three listeners of yours that might end up being from around my area, Breakout Con is a a local one, just four days of just straight gaming. Not a lot of pushing sales kind of thing. Uh, You will have a couple playtesters and stuff like that. So that's a personal favorite. And a very, very small out of the holiday in one that I like going to is just called Phantasm. I'm more saying that just on the off chance that one of the people know about that game and will uh, will have a warm heart feeling because it's just a small little gaming community where I'm at. And anytime we can shout them out on a big platform like this is always a good opportunity. So I've only done a couple of the big conventions, so Gen Con and, and, and PAX Unplugged, but a lot of the smaller Canadian ones that are a lot easier to get away for on a weekend. We have Origins here, which is about two hours away for from Justin, Phil, and myself. They run that in Columbus every year. Unfortunately, with COVID and everything going on this year, we missed that. We missed all our conventions this year, actually. We have we have the same thing. We have a little, you know, kind of small convention uh, called Con on the Cob, and it's run out of the, I think it's like a Comfort Inn like one of the old holodomes so you get like that chlorine pool smell it's such a weird environment but you just keep going back because you love it so much it's like a totally 90s hotel and no great shakes but the friends that you meet there and the people that you get to see every year i think there's a special camaraderie that you develop that you don't get to have with some of those bigger conventions 
I've definitely sat across from people that I don't know. You know, I don't know them on a first name basis, but I've played this game or that game with them. And I'll I'll go tap them on the shoulder. I go, I'm setting up this game. I'm, I'm setting up a game of uh, Scythe over here. or I'm going to be setting up a game of Welcome 2 or something like that. I, I know that's your type of game. Come join me. So those type of ones are just, they're so wonderful. Yeah, that's, you know, really why, a big part of the reason why I got into board gaming. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? I mean, obviously, I want to plug my game again. I just wanted to, you know, just remind everybody, usbescape.com is where you can check it out. Also, definitely check us out on the Instagram to do some of the puzzles. But other than that, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. It means a lot from somebody who's, you know, working hard to get uh, my game out there, but also a fan. I mean, I I really, I, I know I said I was a fan at the start of the show, but what you guys are, what you and, and your friends are doing for the hobby, it really gives a unique perspective that is you know is polished in a lot of different ways but is very raw in a lot of other ways so you know i'm uh, if you see me walking around my town with a, a big smile on my face and you know every once in a while a little bit of a laugh at the, the mention of a corn on the or con on the corb or corn on the cob yeah con on the cob that's what it was, con on the cob, yeah. uh, something like that. You, you best know that I'm, uh, I'm probably listening to to your podcast. So, and uh, I'm definitely going to be listening to what you guys put out in the future. And I'm really excited to hear what you guys got. Well, Keith, I wanted to thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to get my own copy of USB Escape, and we'll probably talk about it on an upcoming episode. You know what? I can't wait to hear it, and and as long as the reviews aren't so bad, I'll uh, I'll be listening in on it. You know, <laughs> I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it as well. I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised. I'm sure I will be. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Well. Stick around because up next, we are going to be answering a viewer mail question right after the break. And we're back. Well, we had a question come in from a listener. It's one of our friends, uh, Jacob in Ohio, that wrote to us and asked a very, very good question, which got Justin, Phil, and I kind of discussing the concept from Jacob in Ohio. My wife and I like to play co-op games, but sometimes they seem to fall into one of us following the other. What are some asymmetric co-op games that you would recommend? This kind of provokes some thought because in co-op games, Phil and I are really big fans of them, and I think Justin really tends to like them as well. We always have that serial Gloomhaven game going on, which we will talk about in a minute. As far as asymmetric co-op games, this was something that really really got me thinking. So the the big one that we thought of was Sentinels of the Multiverse, which is a great hero-themed game where you're all working together to fight a bad guy in an environment. The unique thing about this is that everybody has unique player powers, so they're all balancing one person's a healer, one person's a support, one person's a tank. So you have all these people that are performing a function. And yes, you can have quarterbacking in this game. I've actually seen it, but a lot of people play with the rules of, 
I'm not going to lay my hand out. You are going to take your action. I am going to take my action. And it's kind of a discussion that you have to have beforehand. So it is something that in this game you actively have to avoid. But as far as an asymmetric game, that was the one that we really thought of that doesn't necessarily promote quarterbacking. So then we got to thinking about different types of games that might help reduce that quarterbacking aspect. The first one that I wanted to talk about was games that had imperfect information. And what we mean by that is that some pieces of information or a player motive is not necessarily known. Examples of that are Townsfolk Tussle, which was just on Kickstarter, and we just talked about it last episode. Really good game. You have personal objectives that you might be moving towards. You might make moves that don't necessarily seem to make sense to everybody else, but to you, you're doing the right thing. Another example of this game is something that we just talked about, and that's Gloomhaven. This is the serial case of imperfect information, where you have a goal card, you're trying to advance your character, you're all working together to finish this dungeon, but I might really need this loot more than you do, or I might really need to open this door more than you do. In fact, Gloomhaven goes out of its way to tell you, you can't give a huge amount of information out. So you have to be vague on purpose. And I do think that that helps kind of eliminate a lot of that quarterbacking. Once your action cards are revealed, that quarterbacking can come into play on the back end, but by then you've already laid your cards out. So it's minimized. And the third game that I thought of in this category, The Grizzled. And The Grizzled is a World War one simulator at its finest. Any card that you pick up is going to be bad for you, and you're trying to put down cards and get rid of cards out of your hand as much as you can without going over in the certain suits that you have on the cards. So there may be bullets, there may be whistles. You need to be careful about what you place down. And there are times that for the good of the group, you need to play something that doesn't necessarily make sense to everybody else that's at the table. It's a very divisive game. There are some people like me that really appreciate it, that love it for what it is, and there are other people that cannot stand it because it is so difficult. I think I've won one game out of maybe the 12 that I've played so far, but it is It's fantastic, and I highly recommend checking it out. The next category that I want to talk about is real-time games. And real-time games are games that have a timed element or have something that creates a frantic pace. Escape is a game about cooperatively laying out tiles and exploring a temple to try to escape out of it. I think you get 10 minutes to get out of this temple, and you're laying out tiles, you have dice that will eventually lock up. You will get a symbol that you can no longer roll that die without somebody helping you out and unlocking that die for you. You're going and exploring out, you're coming back together, but the frantic pace of it doesn't allow for a huge amount of quarterbacking and saying, okay, you go here, you go here, you go here. You're trying to get your dice going and you're trying to get your exploration done and 
when somebody calls, you have to very quickly decide, okay, I'm going to help you out. So I don't see a lot of quarterbacking in that game. Now boarding has that to a lower extent. And now boarding is about laying out airline routes and trying to get passengers from point A to point B. The issue with now boarding is the fact that you have a rest period where you're free to talk about and discuss what you're going to do in the upcoming round. But once that round hits, there's a certain amount of stuff that happens that you can't necessarily plan for. You see a reduction in that quarterbacking that happens because of that, but there can be a little bit in that discussion phase. The final category that we talked about was dexterity games, and they're cooperative games that give you the challenge of flicking and flipping components and trying to get a component from this point to this point. Two good examples of this are Flip Ships and Flick em Up Dead of Winter. Now, Flip Ships is a game where you are flicking cardboard ships and trying to get them onto enemy cards, which you're going to destroy these enemy fighters that are kind of coming down at you Space Invaders style. Flick em Up Dead of Winter is about trying to kill zombies and take them out on your way to finish an objective. There's a little bit of quarterbacking maybe when it comes to trying to figure out where to go, but ultimately it's up to your partner to execute the plan that you have the way that they want to. And ultimately they're responsible for going and playing the way that you agree to. So there is some discussion, but at the end of the day, you have to flick and try to get the components where you need them. So Jacob, I hope that answered your question well enough. And again, if anybody has any more feedback or any more suggestions, please make sure to email us at cardboardtime at gmail.com. We'd be really interested to hear what you have to say. And with that, I think that will do it for another edition of Cardboard Time. If you'd like to visit us on our social media accounts, we are on Facebook. Just look up Cardboard Time. We're on Instagram at Cardboard underscore Time. Check out our Board Game Geek podcast page. There's plenty of room there for discussions. Again, if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, make sure that you email CardboardTime at gmail.com. And as always, thanks again for listening. And see you again in another two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time.